This is Our American Stories. And up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions. And Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company, realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams rolling down the side of the tank. He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, 
they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave was devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare He sits a-rocking in his rocking chair but now he's got a smile that he can't lose. Grandma sitting knitting baby's shoes. From eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. Makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak. Chicken fricassee and ice cream cake. I don't need vitamins or pills at all. I even mix it with my hat of call. I'm eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. Makes you live so long you wish you were dead. You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread. My nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor. I never got to sleep till after four. But since I'm eating right, I feel okay. I'm sleeping every night and half.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about Justin McElroy, a Huntington, West Virginia native who, like many of us, started his career on one path, but wound up on a completely different one. Here to tell us about it is Justin. I sort of got an acting and directing degree by default, um, which is to say I didn't think about it much. I just sort of liked doing theater and didn't have much of a plan beyond that. I guess I, on some level I assumed that if I had that, then I would either, like, I couldn't get a boring job. Like, there's still only so many jobs uh, you can do with a theater major, um, and that was about as far as the thinking went. Um, and at a certain point, um, probably about my junior year of college, I wasn't getting cast in, like, lead roles, and it occurred to me, I had this thought, man, if I can't get lead roles at my college in West Virginia, how I don't think I'm going to go to New York and make a living doing this. And, like, I realized that, and I tried to... I almost switched my major to journalism, just, you know, where the real money is. Uh, but I didn't. I just kind of stuck it out. Ended up going to college for five years because I failed Spanish. Eh, them's the breaks. And uh, and then I graduated and uh, immediately put my degree to use uh, working at Best Buy uh, and Borders, the now defunct Borders. I, like, started freelancing while I was still working at um, Best Buy and Borders, Um writing a weekly section called The Edge. The Edge. From my uh, local newspaper that was like youth-focused, um, you know, young people doing cool stuff in the area. And I did that for years. I did that to like, because nobody else wanted to do it. And uh, that's how I got my first job as a news editor at the Ironton Tribune. I worked out from reporter to news editor, uh, which I was in no way qualified to do, but I was cheap. Uh, and I started, I, from there I transitioned to the Herald Dispatch, which is my local newspaper. It's my hometown here in Huntington, West Virginia, covering Marshall University, the university beat, uh, as it was. I was actually there at a really fun time because it was uh, when they were filming the, the movie We Are Marshall. And the entire town was losing its mind. I mean, absolutely melting down with like frequent sightings of Matthew McConaughey and Matthew Fox and assorted and sundry other Matthews. Um, it, it, yeah, you cannot go into a subway here without the, there there being a picture of Matthew McConaughey from the time he was in subway. <laughs> it's, it is it's pretty it's pretty amazing. All right, all right, all right. The entire time that I I was working uh, in news, what I wanted to do was write about video games. I mean, that's where my um, really my passion was. I, I had grown up on not just video games, but video game journalism. Like, I had, like, four different magazine subscriptions to different video game publications growing up. Um, and it was, it was something I really cared a lot about, and I wanted to transition from writing straight news to writing about video games because I thought that would just be the most fun thing in the world. But I started applying, trying to, like, do freelance gigs, trying to pitch articles, trying to take um, the tactic that eventually worked was offering to do reviews that no one else would want to do. Just, like, bitter dregs, bottom of the barrel... Uh, several hunting games, um, and that's eventually how I started building up clips. And I and I got to this race to try to 
work at as many magazines as I could before they got closed down because they were like a dying breed just as I was getting started. So I was like, okay, I got to get into official Xbox magazine and PlayStation, the official magazine and GamePro and PC Gamer and, you know, and on and on just so I could like get the clip before. And like after I worked at one, I would just stop because it's like, okay, I got that clip. I, I want to see how many different magazines I can get so I can put them on my, my resume because I think I had a sense that that would make me seem very distinguished. Uh, pretty quickly as these faded out of existence. But um, the story of how I got actually got hired at Joystick is hilarious and terrifying because I, I put, so I put uh, my whole career, the reason I got onto this trajectory um, and everything that came after that was started with Joystick, which was AOL's video game blog. I had applied to Joystick and hadn't heard and like I, I was doing this with every publication every gaming publication i applied to joystick because i really like joystick and i applied to joystick and uh didn't hear anything for months and just to say and they hired two other people and uh meanwhile i was writing about video games for like the newspaper the herald dispatch let me keep my own video game blog and it was who cares like no one's gonna read my video game blog but i made it seem like something we should have you know, we really need a, a video game blog, guys. So I was, I was writing, a, it was called Blog the Video Game, which is stupid. Um, but I was, uh, so I was writing that, and uh, I found some old clips of this Laserdisc game called Gallagher's Gallery. And I thought, you know, Joystick might be interested in posting these. Uh, so I sent them off to Joystick, and the editor, Chris Grant, saw them. He is uh, a lovely person, but can be a little bit scatterbrained sometimes. Said, oh, th- yeah, I, I was looking for your, I'm glad you sent this. I was looking for your content information. The people we hired didn't work out, but I remember liking your clips. And I was wondering if you, um, you know, would still be open to, to working for us. There's a wild sequence of events uh, that, that would take from A to B were like, I had to find that Gallagher's gallery clip and I had to write a post about it and just happen to send it to joystick. And like, there's a lot of luck tied up in that and it's pretty scary, but it's also like, I think there's something to be learned there from just who, who knows? Nobody knows. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Try everything. Cause you never know what spaghetti's going to stick to the wall. Honestly. We left Joystick, Chris Grant, Griffin, and I all left Joystick, and Arthur Geese uh, left Joystick, and we were sort of the four uh, first people uh, of the eight co-founders of Polygon. So I started, I mean, I was the managing editor, sort of the number two person when, when we founded the site. Um, I was really involved with Chris for a lot of... Uh, uh, the aesthetic decisions and the managerial decisions and figuring out who to uh, bring on and, and everything. Um, so I was sort of like his, his number two person um, and responsible for a lot of the stuff on the site. When we were at Joystick, uh, we did the Joystick podcast. We did 200 some episodes and really helped, it really built a really decent following. And the audience for the joystick podcast was sort of like the seed audience or the base group of people that my brother, my brother and me, when we launched was built from the joystick podcast audience because they were very rabid and supportive. And I've done that with every podcast I've launched since then has been about 
building off a seed audience, a core audience, and then moving them to a new thing. My brothers had lived in Huntington for my whole life. And when Travis went to college, uh, he, he went to school in Oklahoma University, and then Griffin went to school at Marshall, and then the two of them moved to Cincinnati. And uh, I found that like we had started to lose touch. I mean, we weren't talking as much as we used to, not nearly as much as we used to. And uh, I wanted to see what we could do to change that. So my brother, my brother, me really started as an opportunity for the three of us to keep in better contact to talk to each other more um griffin and i were in video games in that industry but travis really didn't know uh that space particularly well um so we picked advice as like just sort of a general topic that all three of us could like bloviate on um you know tell people how to live their lives it seemed pretty easy um and at that point and in podcasting it was 2010 you didn't really need a great premise for a podcast. I mean, there was only like four of them. <laughs> so like, that's exaggeration, but like there weren't a lot. So, it, you know, it, it is a much different day. You have to, uh, <laughs> you know, these days you have to be very focused with your hitches, but um, we we had a pretty general one from a brother or brother me, but it, it worked out okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, I've uh, just my baby monitor has just begun to go off. So I need to go upstairs and get the, my kiddo. If you need any like pickup stuff or anything, you know, you know, this is missing. Just give me a buzz and we'll just like hop back on Skype or whatever. It's, it's no big deal. And that's how Justin left things off. And we wanted to know more. And by the way, what a unique voice. And we love voices from every industry, every age group and every part of this great country. And my goodness, we wanted to hear more from Justin, and we know you do too. So after the break, we'll bring you more of his unlikely story and how despite numerous podcasts and hundreds of millions of downloads, they've kept family at the center of it all. Justin McElroy's story, here on Our American Stories. with Justin McElroy's story and we had heard about how he started a podcast to keep in touch with his brothers. Well, that just sort of accident, that just sort of diversion ended up becoming his living. My Brother, My Brother and Me is one podcast, The Adventure Zone, and so many others. And that's the story of life. And we love telling stories like this on Our American Stories. Now let's hear about how much family means to Justin and how he's used his success to give back to his community. Back to Justin McElroy's story. We grew up goofy on each other, um, and that was the way that we would communicate. We would, you know, try to make each other laugh, try to make dad or mom laugh. 
Um, and it was like a primary form of communication in our house. You know, things didn't get serious for too long. Um, I've later learned uh, in my adult years, sometimes to our detriment, there's a lot of like conversations that it's hard to work gags into, you know, but um, it can get tricky. We've, we've always said that like, if, especially as it became more of a job, we, we had to have a lot of really hard conversations. Like if this ever gets in the way of us being a family, like we have to stop, like the whole thing will stop. And having that there as sort of a escape hatch, no fight could ever be too big because you can't really walk away from it because it's your family. So you better figure out how to make it work. Um, and and I think that like we've we've kept that spirit through all of it. Like our relationship as a family is always more important than the work. There's no um, creative decision or anything that that equals that. So. When we do that, we keep that in perspective. I think it makes for a really fun place to to collaborate in um, because you're you're stuck with your collaborators. I trust my family um, more than anybody on the planet, and I am myself. At the for the most, the people who are in my family are the people that that truly know me, with with just a couple of exceptions. Um, so very dear friends, but, but by and large, I mean, my family is it. Um, and especially now that I have kids, that's it. Having children for me has like clarified so much of what we do because there is a point to all of it. And there's a value to, um, every moment that I'm creating something is, uh, a moment that I'm not spending with my kids. So I really, it has to all count. It has to all be worthwhile. Um, and involving them in like when we go on tour and bringing our, our children um, has made it seem so much more purposeful um, and so much more worthwhile. Uh, and and that's really important to me and, and is a huge reason that, that this continues to be sort of the best best job I've ever had. We are probably in communication more than any family, certainly a family of adults that I know. I mean, we talk constantly um, and there's a warmth there and a familiarity. I think that a lot of families don't have just because they're not in the like forced <laughs> proximity that we constantly are. I'm not complaining. It's just it's just the the, the facts of it. The Appalachian region uh, that that I am from is almost never represented well um, uh, in in mainstream media. I mean, there have been a couple of different TV shows. The the one TV show that was filmed in Huntington was Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, and that was uh, a show about him coming to Huntington to teach people how to eat because everyone was so overweight. Um, and it's like that's that's like emblematic of uh, there was another show called like Big and Loving It or something like that that was like people wanted to come like come and film people who are overweight and just like thrilled about it and that 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 project didn't come to fruition but um, the my region is very rarely represented very well uh, that that sort of idea that these states that aren't New York or California are just sort of like untenable backwaters that that from which no good can arise 
there's so many cool, interesting people here, and their stories just aren't being told. Like it's not, it's it, it you know, it doesn't have that like mainstream exposure. Th- th- those stories just aren't out there. And for me, the podcast studio was just kind of a way to streamline it for people because um, podcasting is not especially challenging to do it's hard to do well but it's not hard to do and um i felt like if if we could save a few steps then maybe uh you know we might be able to encourage some people to get some of those voices some of those voices out there i think the most effective way to tell their story is to let them tell it uh and i feel like podcasting is a really great way to do that because there's very little barrier to entry. Anybody can pull a show together and broadcast a show and, and, and grow that audience. Um, not to say everybody finds an audience, but it, but the barrier to like creating the content is low. Um, and I think that that like really empowers people to tell their own story and not have to rely on others to, to tell it for them. And I feel like the people here, uh, um, it's the sort of thing where they would, it, it is a tradition of, of storytellers, right? Like, folk tales and stuff like that, like is part of our heritage. But, um, I think just digitizing that and bringing it to a wider, uh, community of people, I think is the best way to start to shift those stereotypes about people from this region. And like, and, and, uh, I think it's amazing that the internet has allowed people to, to do that. We got this thing, uh, in our area called the, um, the empty stockings list. And it comes out every Christmas and it's like people in the tri-state area, which for us is we're right on the border of Ohio and Kentucky in in Huntington. So we think of that as like a region with Ashland and um, like South point and Ironton place in in Ohio, but uh, people in the tri-state area that don't aren't going to have anything for Christmas. And I think it was like five years ago, I was reading this list and it's like so depressing because it's not just like kids who want a Paw Patrol toy, although there is that, um, but it's like people who don't, who would like a, a, better tent for sleeping on the river and people who like don't have a bed and stuff. And I took this list of, it's probably like 200 people. And I took this list to our, our Facebook page. And I said, like, if anybody that will help with this, that anybody that will do like give to this and buy something, we will record a personal thank you to you. Um, and we, we did that. It was called the Mabimam angels is what I started calling them because they filled the entire list in the matter of a week. They bought it all. And then the following year, we didn't ask, they just did it. And they, the list came out and they filled it all. Uh, and then the newspaper that puts the list together started giving it to them early and adding more things to it. And then after they fill the needs, they raise money and they've bought, uh, beds and uh, furnaces and uh, uh, handicap accessible ramps and um, I mean like it's it's wild and it is like so not us it is just them like in say last year and for the 2018 Christmas season they did they did not us they did 16 beds uh, 32 pillows two sofas two ovens two strollers a car seat a refrigerator, table and chairs, eight space heaters, clothes, shoes, and toys for every kid on the list. And it's like, it's like, I, I, that's not me. It's just, I'm really fortunate to have really good people who like our stuff. And when you're fortunate to have that, it just seems weird to not, you know, point it towards your home. Mm-hmm.
And you were just listening to Justin McElroy, and great job on that to our team, as always. And we've long opined that the South, Appalachia, a lot of flyover country, well, it's just, if not misrepresented, not covered at all. And I'm not sure which is worse, uh, being slighted or being ignored. But here at Our American Stories, we do the opposite, just as Justin does. So many interesting and remarkable people live all over this great country, and that's why we decided to do a big national show out of a small town, because they all come from big towns. And that doesn't make any sense. Justin McElroy's story, a bit of a story about a misfit who just, well, never fit in until he did and found his vocation by stumbling into it and a story about his hometown, too. Again, Justin McElroy's story here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories, and this next one, well, we always think of Hillsdale College when we tell any stories about American history, and Hillsdale is as fine a place as any in this country to send a young person to learn about the country, about Western Civ, about all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Few stories are as compelling, as complex, and as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. After all, it's a story ripe with moral ambiguity. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor, you Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees. But they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. 
In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold, and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back, confining him to his tent and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the Revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much-needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was to the British what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But 
Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But after Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army, who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America, passed by the Congress, that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. 
Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America, which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. During John Wooden's 27 years at UCLA, he coached the Bruins to four undefeated seasons and a record 10 national championships. He was the first person inducted into the National Basketball Hall of Fame, both as a player and as a coach. And the NCAA and ESPN both named him the greatest coach of the 20th century. The story we are about to hear from Greg Hengler is told by John Wooden himself, his family, his friends, and his players. Here's John Wooden. I grew up uh, at Sutton, about eight miles north of Martinsville, and we lived on a farm there. And But I think the person <clears throat> probably had most in, influence on me uh, throughout were my mother and father, and particularly my father. He said, there's always time for play. That's uh, after the chores and the studies are done, of course. He, he read to us every night. Uh, we didn't have electricity or running water or anything on the farm. And he would read uh, poetry and scriptures to us every night. I had three brothers. Uh, I had two sisters. I, I never really got to know them. They died early. Just being born in Indiana in those years, and any young fellow is going to be interested in basketball, and it's just the natural thing. Dad tacked up uh, an old tomato basket, and um, Mother uh, took an old cotton sock and filled it with rags, making it as round as, uh, as possibly could, and that's where I first started. I went to grade school there at Centerton. My father, I think as a man for whom the word gentleman was coined because he truly was a gentleman. Something that he gave me when I graduated from a small country grade school at Centerton. It was a little card that had a creed of seven points. The first one was be true to yourself. The next point was make each day your masterpiece. The third one was help others. The fourth one was Make friendship a fine art. Another one was build a shelter against a rainy day. Another one was drink deeply from good books. Most important, the good book. And then the last point in this creed was every day and every evening, pray for guidance, 
and give thanks for your blessings. My first year in high school commuted on the interurban that ran from uh, Indianapolis to Martinsville. And then uh, we lost the farm after my uh, uh, freshman year and we moved into Martinsville. I met uh, the young lady, the only girl with whom I ever went with. Here's John's daughter, Nancy. My dad was very, very shy, worked on the farm. My mother was a city girl from Martinsville. She came out with some friends that had a car and uh, he was working in the field and he wouldn't come over to the uh, car. They kept motioning him over and he was plowing and he said he was dirty and sweaty and his overalls. And then when school started again, uh, my mother made a beeline for him and said, you know, why didn't you come over? And he said, I wasn't cleaned up and, and uh, I was ashamed. And she said, you know, John Bob, what she called him until they were in their 30s. Uh, I would never be ashamed of you. And he knew right then that that was for him. In 1924, Martinsville built Indiana's largest high school gymnasium. It sat 5,228, 428 more than the population of the town. During basketball season, coach Glenn Curtis established a policy of no dating and home by 8 p.m. for his players. Nellie countered by joining the pep band. Before every game, John winked at Nellie seated with her bandmates. She gave him an okay sign and he waved back at her. It was the beginning of a pre-game ritual that would last for half a century. While playing for legendary coach Ward Piggy Lambert at Purdue, John was a three-time All-American and won a national championship. After his senior season, John played a few professional basketball games for the Chicago Bruins. This was 25 years before the NBA, but was hesitant about their lucrative offers to play full-time. He sought advice from his coach at Purdue. When I uh, graduated from Purdue, I was offered a lot of money uh, in those days, a lot of money to play uh, semi-pro basketball with a traveling team. It'd just be traveling around all over, playing games, and it was a lot of money, and I talked to Mr. Lambert, my coach. Piggy Lambert was a man of as high principles as anyone I've ever known. Very, very high principles. Told him about this. Oh, he says, that's a lot of money, and I, yes, yes. And he said, uh, you gonna take it? Oh, I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, what'd you come to Purdue for? I said, to get an education, I think. Did you get it? And I said, well, I hope so. Well, he said, I wouldn't throw it away if I were you, but you something you have to do yourself. But remember this, you can't play in dirt and not get dirty. Two days before John and Nellie's wedding, a bank failure claimed John's life savings of $909.25. Here's John and daughter Nancy. Nellie and I were married in Indianapolis, uh, uh, on August the 8th, 1932, and my brother and his girlfriend who had a car drove us up and then they left. My mother was very outgoing. My dad was very, very shy. And she encouraged him in high school to take a public speaking course because he just kind of always had his head down. And I think she was very instrumental in getting him to become less shy with people. They were totally opposite, so I think that's always a big attraction. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
but in this case, it worked beautifully. A few weeks after their wedding, Nellie and John moved to Dayton, Kentucky, where he had taken a job as a high school English teacher, athletic director, and head coach of three sports, including football, which he had never played. When one surly player challenged Coach Wooden's authority, a brief physical altercation followed. John was immediately ashamed. John rehired the former football coach and turned all of his attention to basketball. Nancy Ann Wooden arrived in March of 1934, but after two years in Dayton, John, Nellie, and Nancy moved to a new opportunity in South Bend, Indiana. I don't think South Bend knew whether I'd be a good English teacher or not. Uh, they hoped from my background I could maybe be a pretty good basketball baseball coach. I wanted to be the best English teacher. I ran across a couple of things that made an impression on me. One of them is no written word, no oral plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves. It's what the teachers are themselves. That made an impression on me. John's school year was filled with teaching, coaching, and playing professional games on the weekends. But when America entered World War II in 1941, everything changed. Here's John and Nancy. I enlisted, and probably the uh, probably the, the major disagreement that my dear wife and I had in all our years was that she didn't think I should have. She was upset because Daddy enlisted without, and they always talked everything over, but in this particular thing, um, at this particular time, he just wanted to do that. He um, said so his son would never have to. And I can remember being very frightened. In the aftermath of World War II, many young men went to college. John went back to his job in South Bend, but then his former high school coach, Glenn Curtis, recommended him for the head coaching position at Indiana State. After 11 years as a high school basketball coach, John and Nellie moved to Terre Haute in the summer of 1946. When Wooden held tryouts in October, the gymnasium overflowed with candidates. The team's record during the first season earned them an invitation to the NAIB tournament in Kansas City. That is, as long as they didn't bring Clarence Walker, the only black man on the team, Coach Wooden said his team would not play. Here's Kevin Walker and Indiana State players. My father's name was Clarence Jordan Walker, and his connection with John Wooden was he was a basketball player at Indiana State. Through the years of growing up, uh, my father really never talked much about his days uh, in college. However, it's this one day I was a senior in high school and we lost our regional championship basketball game. I was a little distraught about it, of course. And um, my father came up to me, said, I got something I want you to see. And it was more of a, of a diary that he kept on himself and the Indiana State basketball team and everything that they went through, everywhere that they had to go, where he could play, where he couldn't play, even to the point to places that he could not even go. And I started asking him questions about it. He would just say, you know, this is how it was back then. Every day was a different day and every day has its own trouble. Well, John Wooden, for me reading that portion of the diary, told me about his character and his uh, Christian discipleship, actually, where he would, if we don't take the whole, we're not going at all. 
And what I mean by the whole, his team, that was like his family. And not one was greater than the other. When you became associated with Coach Wood and why you were going to be one of his family. He's one of my boys. So he would say, no, we're not coming. We didn't see color. None of Wooden's teams ever saw color. We would stop at a restaurant uh, along the way and uh, somebody would, uh, would refuse to, uh, to allow him to eat with us. And the manager says, we don't feed people like this. So we all decided to leave. That's what we did. I think the only thing that uh, really kept his mind straight was his family and uh, his faith in God. He was a God-fearing man, taught us and still Christian discipleship and stewardship within us as a family. Probably the most significant uh, was just his desire to show all men are created equal. The next year, the league changed the policy and Clarence Walker traveled with the team to Kansas City. There, he became the first black man to play in a postseason National Collegiate Basketball Tournament. Wherever John went, his wife was always beside him. Here's a couple of Indiana State players and John's daughter, Nancy. She was a pretty lady, feisty. I think she was a feisty little Irish girl. Feisty is a good word for her. Coach Wooden said that Nellie was the most important thing in his life, and he feels that he would not have been anything without, without Nellie. I'm asked many times, um, about my family and growing up, and I continue to think and feel and say that I wish everyone would be as fortunate as I was to grow up in a, a family where my mother and dad loved each other and loved my brother Jim and I. For many years, John Wooden had been contemplating the nature of success. I wanted to uh, come up with a uh, different uh, a uh, definition of success than, than Mr. Webster. I wanted to be more than just the material possessions or prestige. And my dad, I remembered, he tried to teach us that uh, never cease trying to do the best you can do at whatever it is. And uh, I'd more or less forgotten that. Uh, probably it went in there one ear and out the other in that time. And then I read a, a short verse that said, at God's footstool to confess, a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. The master said, thou didst thy best. That is success. From those, I coined my own definition of success in 1934. I choose to define it as peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. And you're the only one that knows that, you know. Nobody else knows. You, you, you can fool others, but you can't fool yourself. It's like character and reputation. Your character, you're, you're the only one who knows your character. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be by others, but your character is what you really are. Coach Wooden developed a teaching tool called the Pyramid of Success. It was not just for his players, but a goal for him to pursue as well. Coach Wooden's record at Indiana State caught the attention of several large universities, including the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers and the UCLA Bruins. John and Nellie's first choice was Minnesota, and he was ready to accept their promised offer. But 
their phone call was delayed by a snowstorm in Minneapolis. Here's John's colleague and friend, Tom Osborne. Somehow because of a communication issue, their offer got to him late and he'd already told the people at UCLA he would go when he probably would have preferred to go to Minnesota because in the Midwest. And, uh, but he said, well, once he had given his word, that was it. So he went to UCLA and, and uh, you wonder in today's culture how many coaches would do that. At UCLA, football was king. The basketball team had a losing record. They shared the space with the gymnastics team and its seating was half the capacity of John Wooden's high school. But John Wooden focused on his opportunity. He told the Los Angeles Daily News, no team is going to outrun or out-hustle the Bruins this season. Slated to finish last, UCLA captured the division championship in 1949. Here's UCLA players Keith Erickson, Marcus Johnson, Doug McIntosh, and daughter Nancy. Even though I grew up in a little city called El Segundo, not too far from here, um, my horizons weren't real broad, so I had never even seen UCLA play. I'd never heard about Coach Wooden. He was just another coach when I got here, and nice, nice little guy, and uh, ran a pretty tight ship, and I was happy to be here. He really taught us uh, the, the basics in every facet of the game. It started with putting on your socks. And it's funny because I have a 12-year-old that I, <laughs> I just had to, you know, re-instruct for the 20th time on how to tie his shoe. You know, his, his shoes always come loose during the game. Dude, dude, tie your shoes up. So he started just tying them haphazardly. I said, no, no, no. You got to start at the bottom, pull each shoestring up two at a time, tight, 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 all the way to the top. And I thought about that. I didn't say it to him, but that's the way Coach Wooden taught us. Coach Wooden did all of his work during the week. His canvas was teaching us during the week and he loved that time of practice. He was a guy who always felt, I think, that we were inclined to coddle ourselves and make it easy on ourselves, and so he wanted to push us to excellence. He prepared two hours every morning, or two and a half hours, for our two and a half hour practice every afternoon. We did things like uh, imaginary shooting drills, where you where, where you'd have an imaginary basketball and you'd shoot the ball, this imaginary ball, and work on your form, work on your, your follow through and, and your rotation, and you had to see the ball kind of going through the hoop. So the whistle would blow, we'd shoot. Whistle would blow, we'd shoot this imaginary ball. <laughs> and coach was, you know, he was into it like it was a real ball. You know, just make sure you, you hold it here and make sure you get the rotation. You got to put your finger right on the hole here and, and go through the whole thing. But, you know, in my mind, I want to say, coach, but there's no ball. I don't know what you, what the, there's no ball. His concern was always to get the maximum out of what we had to work with. You can't, you can't put in what God left out, but you can, you can seek to at least maximize what God put in. And then when we got to the games, uh, we would meet beforehand. He would tell us, uh, you know, just to do our best, play together. And then he would sit down on the bench and we would play. Usually he had his program folded up in one hand and I had his cross in his other hand. That, uh, And I only found this out in later years, but our minister... Um, from the First Christian Church in uh, South Bend, gave it to Daddy when he um, went into the service. Uh, and it was very unusual. It had the uh, Alpha and the Omega on it. And he had his little ritual before the games, of course. You know, kind of pull up his socks and pat his assistant and then turn around and look at Mother and she gave him the high sign. And from then on, it was up to his team. 
1963, John Wooden made some changes that brought dramatic results. Here again is Keith Erickson and Doug McIntosh. In 64, we were not considered to be a serious threat even to win the conference. We were playing Duke, which was a considerably larger team physically than we were. And we were underdogs in the finals. After 29 straight wins, we were still underdogs. But uh, we played a game, the, the same kind of game we played all year. We wore them out in the middle of the game. We had a run, and that's what won our ball games for us. Coach Wooden always told us, never get too high and never get too low. And uh, after the championship, uh, he was right there. The fact that we won the whole thing was, you know, that was a goal of his. And he was very happy to, to have that goal, but he was excited that we had done as well as we could. That's what he always preached and taught, you know, to be a team, to play together, and to be the best that you could be. The next year, UCLA repeated as national champions, setting forth what would become the greatest dynasty in college sports. Wooden became known as the Wizard of Westwood, yet the only magic he ever relied on was his faith and common sense. During the following decade, the Bruins dominated college basketball. Here's Coach Wooden and UCLA great Bill Walton telling the haircut story. Bill Walton was an unusual person in so many ways. He wasn't a rebel, as some people have called him, however. He was just uh, one of those in the uh, 60s of the uh, anti-establishment. As far as basketball, you couldn't have a finer person on your team than Bill Walton. But between practices, I had concerns. I thought I was free, free, free at last when I left home to go to UCLA. And here we were in the age of Nixon and Vietnam and Watergate and rock and roll exploding on the scene. And I thought I was just going to be up there totally on my own having the time of my life. But then there was Coach Wooden standing right there on the steps saying, come right on in here, young man. You're mine for the next four years. He uh, knew that I had certain rules, uh, such as uh, and I didn't permit an extra long hair and uh, beards. We had one period between games of about 10 days, and he didn't shave. And it didn't look very good. He said to me after, Coach, can I talk to you? And I said, certainly, uh, privately. And I said, you can talk before Ducky. That was our trainer and assistant. And he said, well, I just wasn't going to shave. Oh, I said, yes, I'd heard that, Bill. It had been, you'd bandied that around, and it got around that you weren't going to shave. And do uh, you believe in this strongly? Oh, yes, yes, I believe in it very strongly. And I, I have great respect and admiration for people who stand up for the things they, in which they believe. I do, Bill, and we're going to miss you. <laughs> <laughs> and he stood there for a minute and said, I'll shave. <laughs> I fought with Coach Wooden over these incredibly meaningless things. At the time, I thought they were the most important things in the world. I've got a saying on my desk from Coach Wooden at home, it's the things we learn after we know it all that really count in our lives. Those lessons in life are truly the greatest ones. I believe one of the greatest motivating things we have is the pat on the back. I think we all like that. Now, I know that sometimes the pat has to be a little lower and a little harder, but I still believe that the pat on the back, uh, pray, everybody likes praise. If, if I ask you here, if, if raise your hand if you like praise, if every hand didn't go up, I think there's some liars in here <laughs> because I think everyone uh, likes praise and, and uh, 
I think that I think most people like to live up to expectations. They like to live up to the expectations. Not other, not all all of them have the poise to do that. But I think everyone really likes you, you. You'd like to please people. You don't like to displease people in anything. And I think most most people are that way. And I think the greatest motivating factor to get him to do that is the pat on the back. Not necessarily physically, just a word, maybe a smile, maybe a nod. And I think that's the greatest motivating factor we have. In December 1972, Coach Wooden suffered a mild heart attack. At the end of that season, UCLA won its seventh consecutive national title. No team had ever won more than four and was riding a 75-game winning streak. In January 1974, a one-point loss ended UCLA's 88-game winning streak. At the NCAA semifinals, North Carolina State defeated the Bruins 80-77 in double overtime. John Wooden struggled as never before with the pressure of success. If you're in this type of profession, when you're in the public eye, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have praise, you're going to have criticism. Some of it's going to be deserved and some of, the, some of it isn't. But your strength, now I don't care whether you're a teacher, a surgeon, or whatever you are, your strength depends on how you react to both uh, praise and criticism. You can't let either one affect you. I first heard this at an FCA conference in Estes Park, Colorado in the early years of the FCA. This crowd on earth, they soon forget the heroes of the past. They cheer like mad until you fall, and that's how long you last. But God, he never does forget, and in his hall of fame, by just believing in his son, Inscribed, you'll find your name. I tell you, friends, I would not trade my name, however small, inscribed up there beyond the stars in that celestial hall, for any famous name on earth or glory that they share. I'd rather be an unknown here and have my name up there. Wouldn't we all? And you've been listening to John Wooden, and my goodness, just hearing those words, hearing that story about Bill Walton, and so much today you hear in current events and in the news about the kids being the leaders of the teams and the coaches doing whatever the kids say, and we all know that doesn't make sense. And there were turbulent times then. Bill Walton had every right to grow his beard and speak out against the war, and and coach encouraged him, but there were rules for the team, and the coach was in charge, and Bill understood that, and he loved coach for that. Let's return to Greg Hengler with more of John Wooden's story. After almost 40 years of coaching, retirement was on the horizon for John Wooden, but nobody knew for sure when, not even Coach Wooden, until one Saturday night in 1975, after defeating Louisville in overtime at the NCAA semifinals in San Diego. When the game ended, instead of going to meet the press as he usually did, John Wooden made his way to the UCLA locker room. Here's Marcus Johnson. Coach Wooden comes in and just kind of tells us to, you know, pipe down, you know, quiet, quiet, quiet. I got something to say to you guys. And so he came in and talked about um, 
how he was happy with the job that we, were done, we had done and, and we had played a great game and that he had uh, been thinking about this a long time and, and had come to the conclusion that the next game, that Monday night, the championship game would be his last game and that he was uh, going to retire and uh, get out of coaching. You know, everybody felt like they had been kind of punched in the chest. He told us that and uh, walked out and Andre McCarter, who was the captain of that team, was kind of our spiritual compass in terms of how he looked at things. And he pulled us all together and it's like, guys, look, you know, there's no way that we're going to let Coach Wooden not go out a national champion. You know, there's just no way that's going to happen. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, yeah, you're right. There's no way we're going to let that happen. UCLA beat Kentucky 92 to 85. In retirement, Coach Wooden's speaking engagements and basketball camps for young players kept him busy. And of course, his theme at these events was always the pyramid of success, his teaching tool of universal truths to help people reach their full potential. Here's Bill Walton, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and the coach. He made basketball fun. I mean, he made basketball fun, he made life fun. It was never a drag. Coach Wooden was cool because he, he got us up to a very sharp edge but he never was like, I, I think of a guy running a dog sled team, you know, he, and he, he never had to do that, you know. He's very calm. His leadership was very calm, and we were very focused, and we'd go out there and tear people apart, but it wasn't a whole lot of wild passion to it. Passion. Passion is temporary. It doesn't last long. Love is enduring. And that's the important thing. If we all had love in our lives, the degree that we should have, oh, it would be much happier. I, I like a little poem. Uh, it says, uh, a bell isn't a bell until you ring it. A song isn't a song until you sing it. And the love that is in us wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. That's the important thing, most important word in our dictionary. Things went in the order of Nell, his kids, and then basketball. And he was maybe fifth. We're talking about a very selfless man. We always knew how important his family was to him, his uh, son and daughter and their kids. A lot of love and support, and it was obvious to us that family unit really supported him, and that was all the approval he really needed. Nellie passed at age 73 on March 21st, 1985. I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate. Uh, Nellie was my high school sweetheart. She's the only girl I ever dated. And uh, we had 53 wonderful years together before uh, I, I lost her. But she was so cooperative in every way. And I, I think we, we need help to, to help you um, do what you're capable of doing. She was. Uh, um, She was great. For the next two decades, on the 21st day of every month, John wrote a love letter to Nellie. Every year brought new honors and awards to Coach Wooden. He received each one graciously, while keeping in mind a favorite saying, Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be thankful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. Today is the only important day of your life. Yesterday's gone. It'll never change. 
Tomorrow can only be affected by what you do in preparation today, and failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Um, my favorite poet is me. I'm a rhymer. I'll give you one that I wrote recently if you'd like to hear it. The years have left their imprint on my hands and on my face. Erect no longer is my walk and slower is my pace. But there is no fear within my heart because I'm growing old. I only wish I had more time to better serve my Lord. When I've gone to him in prayer, he has brought me inner peace. And soon my cares and worries and other problems cease. He's helped me in so many ways, he's never let me down. Why should I fear the future when soon I could be near his crown? Though I know down here my time is short, there is endless time up there, and he will forgive and keep me ever in his loving care. I'm a rhymer. That's a rhyme. <laughs> Not so. John Wooden met his maker on June 4th, 2010. He was 99 years old. Let's finish the story with Keith Erickson speaking at John Wooden's memorial service on UCLA's campus. Here's what I remember about Coach Wooden. Kind of a man he was. He was honest. He was wise. He was humble. He was fun. He was kind. He was gentle. He was a man of faith. He was a man of the Bible. And I repeat to you what he told me that Jesus was the Lord of his life. On the 21st of the month, the best man I know will do what he always does on the 21st of the month. He'll sit down and pen a love letter to his only girl. He'll say how much he misses her and loves her and can't wait to see her again. Then he'll fold it once, slide it in a little envelope, and walk into his bedroom. He'll go to the stack of love letters sitting there on her pillow untie the yellow ribbon, place the new one on top, tie the ribbon again. There's never, never been another coach like Coach Wooden. Quiet as an April snow, square as a game of checkers, loyal to one woman, one school, one way, walking around campus in his sensible shoes and Jimmy Stewart morals. He'd spend a half hour the first day of practice teaching his players how to put on a sock, Wrinkles can lead to blisters, he'd warn. Players would sneak looks at one another, roll their eyes. Eventually they'd do it right, good, he'd say, and now the other foot. <laughs> Discipline yourself, and others won't need to, coach would say. Never lie, never cheat, never steal, and earn the right to be proud and confident. If you played for him, you played by his rules. Never score without acknowledging a teammate. One word of profanity and you're done for the day. Treat your opponents with respect. He believed in a hopelessly out-of-date stuff that never did anything but win championships. No dribbling behind the back or through the legs. There's no need, he'd say. No long hair and no facial hair. They take too long to dry and you could catch cold leaving the gym, he'd say. That one drove his players bonkers. It's always too soon. When you have to leave that condo, go back into the real world. As he shows you to the door, you take one last look around. The framed report cards, his great grandkids, boxes of jelly beans peeking out from under the 
favorite wooden chair, the dozens of pictures of Nellie. He's a little more hunched over than last time. His step's a little smaller. You hope it's not the last time that you see him. I was with him a couple of years ago, and I said to him, Coach, as I'm sitting in his condominium and there are awards and plaques and acknowledgments and trophies, all of these things in his, his little place. And I said, Coach, how would you like to be remembered? And he immediately answered me, and he said, I'd like to be remembered as a man who came as close as possible to being the man that my father was. Wouldn't you have loved to have known his father? What a man he must have been. Whenever you left his place, you'd go down that elevator, walk through the garage, and I had friends with me several times, and, and we'd be walking along after leaving, and they'd have tears in their eyes. <laughs> they'd say, one of the greatest days of my life, after hearing his stories, and quote those poems, and talk about Abraham Lincoln and Mother Teresa. I'd say, it's not over yet. We'd go up that driveway, and I'd say, oftentimes, he stands over here at the window or on his patio, and he waves to us, and he says goodbye. He says, thanks for coming, and we'd look there, and there he was, waving, thank you for coming. And I can see him there saying that to us, thank you for coming. Coach, thank you for allowing us into your life. Our coach, our teacher, our mentor, our friend, your father would be very proud of the man that you were. We'll never forget you, Coach. Thank you for everything. And what beautiful words. And watching grown men that day hold back tears. More of a coach when he was a coach. And over the years, then he became a friend. And my goodness, I can picture them all rolling their eyes as coaches giving him some of the rules. And in the end, they all came home. They all loved Coach. And by the way, every ethnic variety, every religious Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to a born-again Christian like, well, as you just heard Keith Erickson speak. And wouldn't loved them all the same. Black, white, Hispanic. Loved them all the same. Had the same standard for all of them too. Excellence. To be your best. To give your best. And to be great teammates. John Wooden's story, a remarkable story of love, of faith, here on Our American Stories.